This is the LarryandFishers.com podcast. My name is Larry Lannon, and I'm uh, very happy to have uh, as a guest a former neighbor of mine, uh, a man who has taught social studies for a number of years. He teaches social studies at Fishers Junior High School. I'm speaking of Mike Fossil. So, Mike, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you coming in on a weekend for a teacher who's teaching in a very difficult environment. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it, Larry. For you, I'd do anything. Oh, well, that's kind of you to say that. Well, my first question really has to do with uh, what happened on January 6th. January 6th uh, was uh, a school day. It was a regular school day. You were teaching classes. At one point in that day, did you realize something historical is happening? It, it was actually... Um, pretty early and it's not really early in the day it was more to the lead up to it uh, the fact there was going to be a stop the steel rally and there were speakers going to be speaking at it and those speakers by and large you know included president trump his son rudy giuliani you know a member of congress or two and it's a, you know and it's a pretty large crowd and that lead up of a friend of mine who teaches um, We the People at another school and I kind of texted back and forth and we're like, this this could go badly. You know, I mean, it depends on what happens. Now, we had no idea what was going to happen. But then when reports started to come in, because we live in a pretty instantaneous world, uh, my first reaction was, uh, I have to gather information. And so after school, I spent after school, I was probably there till 7.30 or so trying to get, you know, my mind around what I was going to tell my kids the next day. And so that was kind of, I became aware during the day, but that night as things started to come in, trying to, you know, get an idea of what I was going to tell my kids. And as a mostly retired guy myself of almost nine years, or actually more than nine years, I, I uh, was watching the TV coverage, looking at various news sources, and I must tell you, uh, it was hard to get facts during the day. It was hard to get facts at night. I just, it wasn't the journalist's fault necessarily. They were trying their best, to, and, I, and I have to give a lot of them credit. Uh, they weren't trying to guess what happened. They were trying to get as many actual facts as they could put together. And when the story's breaking, there are some wrong facts that come out, and that did happen. But once you got, uh, maybe you didn't have all the facts, but the enormity of what happened uh, at the Capitol on January 6th happened. You obviously had to think about, okay, how am I going to handle my classes on January 7th and social studies at the junior high level? Tell me uh, how you approach that. You know, it was interesting. And as you know, because you've been so supportive, um, I have a We the People uh, class of eighth graders that whose focus is on our government's history its constitution, roots of government. And so for these kids, I mean, this is stuff that they know. It's not casual observance. These are curious kids. And, you know, and I didn't see them the next day because we're on a block schedule, but I was texting with some of those kids and some of my past kids through the night 
I think the last text I answered was at like quarter to one in the morning. And then, so my focus was twofold. I have seventh graders who are pretty innocent in such things, but knowing full well that I'm going to have a full course of questions from my eighth grade team that is by this point pretty aware. And also these kids were staying up on what was happening and they have opinions and questions. The next day, the way I approached it the next day was, instead of, like you pointed out, there were a lot of disjointedness in the facts and that kind of stuff. So what I focused on was, you know, I told my kids, I had an opening slide when I talked with them and said, what can I do to help you understand? And I didn't have a ton of questions. I had a probably five, six kids in every class that had no idea what was going on. And I showed a little timeline video without an opinion to it that was put out by a TV station in Ohio. Uh, it was pretty generic, but gave a pretty good kind of timeline view. And so I showed that and I said, do you have any questions? And I had kids ask questions, but it was, it wasn't really all that intense of things. Now, there's reasons for that. And this is, you know, I think the fact that we have um, de-emphasized the study of history and civics in school has taken a, a toll on a generation of informed citizenry. And you can see that with almost anything in current events, we, through our de-emphasis of, you know, that we don't have as many kids that are aware. And even my We the People kids, I have to teach them awareness. Now, the next day when I had my We the People kids in there, um, it was because uh, I have them for two classes on that second day. And they had questions for about 45 minutes. And there were questions dealing with what kind of charges you know, is, you know, that kind of thing. And finally, uh, I had one of my kids and a very bright young lady who asked me, um, could President Trump be held liable criminally for any of these actions? And I'm, I'm of the mindset that I think my kids should find knowledge themselves. So what I did was, I said, this is what I would recommend that you do. The speeches on the ellipse prior to that, to the Stop the Steal folks, I want you to go listen to it. I'm not going to tell you what it says. I'm not going to show you excerpts. I want you to go listen to it. It's on YouTube. Go listen to it. And then I want you to go ahead and ask yourself that same question. And then if you have questions, when we come back to our second class, which was after lunch, then I'll, am then I'll answer that. And so I let my kids uh, kind of organically gain a perspective and knowledge and a view of that. And then I ask questions. And those questions after lunch, of course, were, you know, some kids were like, you know, does this rise to Brandenburg? And you saw that in the news of people are saying, you know, that the Brandenburg versus Ohio case from 1969 applies. Well, I think you know, some of the people that were saying that uh, were leaving out part of Brandenburg, but, you know, 
to each their own. And you'll but, have to explain Brandenburg to our audience just because they may not know. Okay. Brandenburg is a is is a Supreme Court decision that limited speech. And basically, um, you can have inflammatory speech, right? It, but what matters is, is that if it's going to result in imminent lawless action and that that action is probable. Like if, for example, if I get in, out in front of a large sympathetic or, audience and say, look, we're going to need to go ahead and uh, take out Greenland before Greenland you know, is able to launch their forces of evil upon us. And so I think I should grab my nuke that I have in the garage and launch it at, you know, at Greenland. Well, it has some problems to it. You know, is it imminent? No, I'm not really saying to do it now or, you know, next week or those type of things. I'm not, it's not, you know, like it's realistic, but it's not, the second part is it's not probable. I don't have a nuke, you know, those type of things. So it, it looks as just being like blustering, you know, and, you know, if every person who blustered in the world was arrested, you know, the jails would be overflowing. And so the the Brandenburg limitation on speech, you know, for for people that are directing violent action has to have a time. It it has to be probable and those type of things. And so my kids have questions like that because I've taught them, you know, Brandenburg, Chaplinsky's fighting words doctrine. I've taught them all this stuff. And so when they ask questions, they ask them very specifically. They know what New Hampshire versus Cox decision on time, place, and manner on speech restrictions. They know this stuff. So their questions are are like rifle shot questions. And as a teacher, you know, you've got to you gotta let them come to their conclusion without te- telling them their conclusion, because telling them their conclusion defeats the purpose of what a team like I'm a constitutional law team is supposed to do, which is the ability to think, understand, digest, and then regard, you know, then come up with something from that. And I want to talk more about the We the People program before we end this, and that, that that's kind of an elevated version of, of social studies uh, at the uh, junior high level and high school level, too. Is there a way that you could capsulate or summarize or explain uh, the general feelings your students, I'm going to say your We the People students who were dialed into this kind of thing, what was their reaction? Did they understand the enormity and, and the historical, uh, uh, just the history that were they were witnessing on what happened January 6th? I, I will, I'll tell you the reaction of one of my um, young ladies. Uh, she's a Unit 4 girl, and uh, she is uh, a brilliant scholar. Um understated she's not unopinionated and she won't she'll share it with you but she was struck she she was struck by the image of the guy carrying the confederate flag inside of the Capitol. i mean she couldn't get past that in the sense of that visual struck and stuck with her the enormity of that visual and she it, it And her comment to me was almost like, how, how far have we fallen that this imagery wanders our capital on the day the electoral college vote 
is read aloud to the joint session of Congress. How is that possible? And even though, you know, if, if that person was there legally and they brought out a Confederate flag, you know, I think that their freedom of expression would be protected. But the fact that it was a forced entry and the fact that someone could bring that up, this imagery struck her at a personal level. And she was not the only one of my kids that felt that, that there was almost like it was a pollutant on the American ideal and its republic. Just that simple imagery in that event, that violent insurrection event, that that bothered her and it bothered my kids. Yeah, anybody will tell you that in journalism, there are certain still pictures that we still remember in history. I mean, Iwo Jima will be one, that that historical photo, uh, the, the couple kissing uh, on Times Square when the war ended. There are just certain and still pictures, even in today's world where we have much more than still media. That And I think that Confederate flag is definitely going to be an historical photo that will be around when uh, my grandchildren are, are studying history at some point uh you know there as i was re i read a lot this morning getting ready for this uh, about what some of the educators are saying about how they they treat this uh, just all over and we tend to use this phrase teachable moment i've heard this a lot uh just as an education reporter but certainly this morning as i scoured the internet for real educators who are who are discussing this uh, this has to be the definition of a teachable moment for anybody in social studies. Yeah. You know, Larry, it's funny. I, I, and that phrase is well known and, and you've been around the education beat large enough, but sometimes I, I, in this case, it's almost like it's the unfortunate unteachable moment because it's a very difficult thing to teach because there is this, we in history, when you deal with history, at least at some level, there's a resolution. Right? When we study an event or an action, we can look at it, capture it, and then there is a resolution to it. And in this moment on January 6th, um, it is still hard to explain things to my kids. And that's that's the real teachable kind of moment but it's a flip from it's more of the teachable moment from the kids to me is that you know you you train up this this group of kids that are insightful they're knowledgeable they know but they're still 13 and 14 years old and so that means that they're innocent into some of the realities of the world and so they have a tendency to ask me questions that that are like, well, why would someone believe this? Why would someone do that? And that's a hard thing because they're not hardened and have experienced enough of the world to realize that some things in life just cannot be explained easily. And when but kids want things explained, they also want to know that there's going to be a positive resolution. And you know, I know you're struck by imagery too. You and I grew up at a time 
when a lot of our imagery was a single photo. I think of Kent State, you know, watching the the the, the college girl leaning over someone who was shot and killed. I think of the nine-year-old girl in Vietnam who had just uh, was walking down the road after her village was napalmed. Those images ingrain in us. Uh, and so I think when you and I look at all of this, you know, I think the imagery that my kids are dealing with now of seeing all these National Guard troops at the inauguration, that's, that's going to be striking. Because you and I, with our experience level, we know when we see those kind of changeovers in government that require 20, 30,000 troops to make sure it happens. We know what that is. But my kids don't, and they don't understand it. And it's hard to explain to them. Yeah, I just saw that the Indiana legislature is not meeting at all uh, the week of, because uh, I don't, never know when people are going to listen to this podcast. So it's we're recording this on January uh, the 16th. And the following week, the week of the inauguration, the uh, Indiana legislature has decided not to meet at the recommendation of the state police commissioner with uh, the governor asking them not to meet. I've been trying to find historians online who can give me a precedent for that. Nobody has been able to come up with one. And this way that the inauguration is going to be handled is another. And in that light, I want to just read you a quote from a, a writer at Ed Week that I found uh, this morning. And I listen, just listen to this quote and give me your reaction. He said he wrote the following: "Teachers are always, in a sense, the nation's first responders to world historical events." I'll close the quote there. Do you think that's true? Um, I like the idea of it. I don't know if it's true because. And the reason I, I don't, I think the, I think their families are the first responders. I guess it depends a little bit on when it occurs, but you know, if the events of that day, my kids went home, our kids went home uh, on January 6th and they went home and their parents level of acknowledgement, their parents level of understanding, their parents take on the events is in many ways the first responding. I think teachers have the, are really kind of like the second responders, but we're also a much more, um, I don't know, global response. Because, I mean, if being a teacher on these type of events, you have to look at the entire event, not as much as, I mean, we're all biased human beings by our nature, by our own experiences, but as best that we can, we cannot commit the same sins that so many people make. We can't do a rush to judgment. You know, we, we can't do that. It's, it's, it's unethical for that. So we have to kind of always kind of bring in things that we know. And then from the things that we know, allow our kids to digest information and hopefully they can draw their own opinions from that. So I, I, I like the, I like what the guy says. And I understand why they're saying that. I, I just, I think it leaves off the reactions of families. And I think some families that react a lot and some families that react not at all, it still is the first impression, the first responder. 
One thing I've, I've seen online from educators as well is that many are, are uh, suggesting that in the classroom that the teachers in, in social studies at uh, the junior high and high school level should try to compare and contrast what happened at the Capitol January 6th with the Black Lives Matter movement this past uh, summer. Do you think that's a good idea? Is, is it something that you think the students could learn something from? Or uh, just give me your reaction to that idea. Oh, that's so loaded. Um, I, if, if, yeah, if, I mean, I, I can just give you one. You can I do mean, it. I think that there's a. What some teachers are doing are, are showing the reaction of the authorities to January 6th as compared to um, the official the yeah, reaction a, to, to the Black Lives Matter. I think that's right. one. And Larry, yeah, and, that's, and that actually is, you know, that actually is the easy comparison, right? You just, you look at it on, on just a, that's a single level thing. Take a look at the police reaction of this event and that event, and you go, Okay, that's wildly different. But then that leads to the, the next question. And that next question is why. And that next question of why is a lot deeper question. And it's a good question. It's a question that has to be asked. But it's in the why that you have to caution yourself to the age of your kids. And that takes work and that takes preparation. To do that now, I will tell you, um, I would do that without any problem with my eighth graders, uh, partially because uh, you can't teach U.S. history, constitutional law, without dealing with some, you know, very difficult things. It just doesn't happen. But it's digging into that why that requires a lot, and you know, because if you want to dig through the roots of that answer, is I like this year because of the Black Lives Matter movement and some other things. For my eighth graders, I taught the Red Summer of 1919. Now I could go up to a thousand adults and ask them about the Red Summer of 1919, and I'm not very confident that I would hit double digits of the percentage of them that had any idea about that. And yet, if you look, the reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement, it's a, it's a direct echo from the Red Summer of 1919. It's no different. And so in order to be able to answer that why correctly, you have to look at the historical part of that, and that doesn't come easy. Yeah, I think you have to look at these issues from an historical background, historical context. And that is complicated. And when you're dealing with uh, students of a younger age, you know you've got to explain this to them. And uh, and and uh, that is a complicated history. But I'm going to put a plug in right now for anybody in Fishers, if there's still uh, anybody, uh, any uh, places available. Mayor Fadness has put together an interrupting racism program, which looks into the, some of the historical facts of of our history of race relations, all the way from slavery to now. And uh, I think you'll get something out of that for an adult who maybe not under doesn't understand all this. Uh, it's 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 not judgmental in any way. It's just trying to explain 
uh, race relations. And I think and that's for adults, and, and that's available for free if you choose to take it. Um, but I do think, that, and the reason I brought that up is because it seems to be a discussion amongst the educators that I'm, I'm reading about. But uh, your answer was was quite illuminating. You know, just it was just one year ago, Mike, that uh, there was an impeachment of the president going on. I think the, by this point a year ago, I, the, the Senate trial might have even been going on. Uh, we've had a second impeachment after January 6th. I won't get into that. When that impeachment trial was going on a year ago, did you discuss it in your classes, and how did you try to deal with that uh, with your students? You know, the, I'll put another plug in. If you are not familiar with the iCivics program, uh, which is a national program, it is a fantastic device for kids of all ages. Well, one of the things that they offer are sort of these infographics and some of these very simple to understand lessons. And what I focused on on impeachment was the structure, the constitutional structure of it. Because I wanted my kids to understand that it literally is involves, you know, the the House, and I explained through the normal action of going through the Judiciary Committee and what that would do, then it'd go to the full House and it's a simple majority vote. And then from there, it goes over to be tried in the Senate. And then once it gets to the Senate, I wanted the kids to know, like, this is how the uh, accused gets due process. I wanted them to understand this is not necessarily a criminal thing. Uh, we went over the Federalist Papers that dealt with impeachment for its goals. And then uh, I laid out, you know, what the kids could expect from that. And then I also wanted to emphasize to them that the founders in our country intentionally made it difficult to remove someone from office because they expected it. And it says this in the federal papers that they expected it to be factional in the House because the House was designed to be factional. They represent small regions, you know. And most of the factions at that time, if you look at them, are more geographic. So they expected it to be heated and emotional in the House. But the Senate was supposed to cool that down a little bit. And that's why they sent that, you know, today you need 67 votes to, to remove someone. And, you know, that's a high threshold. And I wanted my kids to understand that that was done for a reason. Impeachment is there for a reason. It has a reason. But the threshold and structure has a reason, too. Now, the kids asked me, did I expect them to remove President Trump? And I said, no. I, you know, because if you look at the histories of impeachments, there's not a lot of it. But when you look at it, by and large, it's pretty partisan. And people, when it gets into the Senate, they vote along party lines, you know, for the most part. You know, so if that held true, and it's not like our country... Uh, is not divided along party lines, to, you know. And so I told him I didn't think it was going to happen. And you were correct at that point. Um, time is running out for us right here. I just want to ask about one aspect of this. Uh, you've been teaching virtually for several weeks now. Uh, you're going back to a 50-50 hybrid, which I think over a two-week period, the students will be in half the time and on virtual the other half. Uh, does that complicate your ability to to get a real feel for how your students are thinking, or how has this impacted the way you you try to teach social studies? It it, it has an impact, and the teaching of social studies, I, I I don't know if that's quite the biggest impact. The biggest impact is on the relationship I, with, that I have with my kids. 
because you there are these moments in the school day that allow you to build relationships that are not part of class time. It's the passing periods. It's, you know, the walking to lunch with your fifth period class and hanging back with a couple different kids every day to find out how their game is going and whether or not they've got Isma band concert coming up and, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's through those things that I think our kids and I think our teachers have struggled the hardest with because like I have kids on my We the People team that until state I had never seen them in person because because during tryouts half of the tryout ended up being virtual and so I never was in the same room with them I couldn't even tell you how tall they were and but you lose those moments that you have in the classroom when you can sit beside a kid. Cause I took my desk out years ago and I kind of sit amongst the kids. You get a lot of information about kids and how they're feeling and what they understand and what they don't in those two, three minutes, you sit beside them and just talk with them. And for kids that struggle, when you miss that, uh, that's a lost opportunity. That's a, that's a hard thing. Now you mentioned we the, the you mentioned we the people a couple of times, and I just want to put a plug in for that because uh, your first we the people team went and won a national championship. Uh, I was very happy that you asked me to help with that preparation. I guess being a retired guy helped there. Your class wanted some extra practice, and I was available and was more than happy to do it. Um, and you've had several national championship teams. It's, for those who don't know, it's basically where you present a paper on a particular issue of Constitution or history, and uh, you have to take questions from a, a group of experts, usually, uh, on those subjects. Uh, so you have to be very prepared to be in We the People. It's really civic knowledge and your ability to compete with other schools about their civic knowledge. And I want to put this in a framework of what you said earlier, that are we perhaps as a society paying the price for not teaching social studies, history, government, you know, we're into STEM, and I'm not bad-mouthing STEM. It's that we're in a technical world, but have we lost something? Uh, I know as a social studies teacher, you probably have strong feelings about this. But just as a, as a general comment, uh, what have we lost as a nation? Have we lost our way in understanding our history and our government, and, and what can we do about that? Well, I mean, yes, we have. I mean, it's every <laughs> any poll you want to run, tells you how little knowledge uh, this generation, and I would argue generations that came before them, have on civics and government. When I was in high school, civics and government were two different classes. And so you took civics, you, th then you took government. And, you know, it's, it actually goes back to, you know, the standardized testing movement that basically uh, attached a penalty for schools not doing well on English and math. And well, if you're holding jobs over people's heads, uh, they're going to emphasize that. And so English and math were emphasized. Well, time's got to come from somewhere. So you saw in the lower grades, especially uh, a de-emphasis of science and social studies and social studies in particular in civics. And, you know, this has been a long held movement. And so we've aggregated into places where our kids don't really get their first true history study until the middle grades. 
well, it's not like it's too late, but they're behind. And, you know, if you look at it, if you look at science and social studies, I tell my kids this all the time, science and social studies are very similar. If you look at historical analysis and you look at the scientific method, they're almost the same thing, right? There's an hypothesis that's put forward or an idea that's put forward. You gather data from as much data across the, the landscape as you can find. You test that data and you see whether or not your hypothesis or your idea holds. Well, if that's largely the backbone of good history and science education and that's gone, then where is it? And if it's nowhere, then we have lost, we have a generation that has lost that ability to really analyze information. And that's a crucial thing. I think uh, science and government interact with each other. We could probably talk a half hour about that. But, uh, Mike, I've learned a lot myself just talking to you in terms of how teachers approach important historical events like the one uh, we saw on January 6th. We're really out of time. Is there any final comment you would like to make just in this general uh, subject that we've been talking about before I wrap this up? You know, uh, there's just two really Really brief things, and I, I want to, um, you know, congratulate the Indiana State Legislature because it funds we the people in our state. It provides a funding item for that. I think it's one point five million dollars, and that money is largely administered through the Indiana Bar Foundation. Which, without those two things, Indiana is a strong we the people program, and we have that because people cared enough to one fund it because your priorities are where your monies are. And then also you have the Indiana Bar Foundation. Those folks down there have done yeoman's work to go ahead and spread this program and increase the knowledge of teachers and to put experts in the hands of everyday teachers. And without that, that program doesn't exist. Now, if I had my way, we the people would be the program uh, taught through every school in our country, um, especially at the elementary uh, level. If you ever want to know what that looks like, uh, Lana Kane over at Fall Creek uh, Intermediate School is a wonderful, wonderful example of that. But to, at the junior high, middle school level, I think that program should be mandatory. I don't care if, if people compete at the state level and regionals. And if, even if they do in-house presentations, you cannot replicate the things that kids learn, the depth that they learn. Uh, in that program. It's, it is the finest example to me of a truly authentic assessment of deep learning and understanding that is that the kids earn on their own. I, I'm a believer in the program. Mike Fossil is a longtime social studies teacher. He teaches at Fisher's Junior High School, social studies, of course. Mike, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time for me. Larry, as always, it's great to have you as a friend. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Enjoy great. the grandbaby if you ever. <laughs> Thank you, know, you for as that. As soon as you can. Well, you'll be a grandfather at some point, so you'll enjoy that. I too. hope. Uh, I just, hope. Just want to sign this off by reminding people that uh, I want you all to please be kind and be safe.